You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Congressman Peter Welch, Democratic member of Congress from Vermont. Welcome, Peter, and thank you so much for being with us. Andrew Schwartz, my partner in this enterprise, unfortunately cannot be with us. It sends his regrets, Peter, that he couldn't be with us today. You've been in Congress, first elected in 2006. You've been very active in the Energy and Commerce Committee, Oversight and Reform, the Select Committee on Intelligence. We interacted at that hearing on the impacts of the COVID-19 upon Africa, maybe six weeks ago. I want to focus today, our conversation today, principally around Vermont. And I wanted to start with asking you, you know, this is a state that is has a remarkable story to tell, really. It's one of the very few outlier states that's truly controlled COVID-19. It has an exceedingly low case count, under 1,500 very low fatality numbers, I believe under 60, and very low positivity rates, lowest per capita infection rate in the entire country. Can you just give us a bit of a picture of how did this happen and what's so different about Vermont that explains this outcome? It's it's neighboring states have not done quite as well. Some of them have done better than others, but Vermont's really a standout in this case. Why is that? Well, number one, we're rural, we're small, and we're connected. And I think that gave us a start if we were willing to build on that. Number two, we had a governor, have a governor, who took this very seriously immediately. This is Phil Scott? This is Phil Scott, our Republican governor. And just to give an example, on the basically the day he was a declaring a state emergency, it was early in March, like the 14th, I was in Washington where... 435 of us and about 100 staffers were all together on the floor. No mask, no discussion about the extraordinary urgency and threat of this. And we were passing one of the first coronavirus packages. But within Washington, it was totally the opposite. I left Washington, came back to Vermont. And when I was going down the interstate, about a 90 minute drive from me, there were no cars because the governor had declared the state of emergency. So he was out front before Congress really had an awareness about the health consequences of this. And in fact, on the day before I returned from Washington, Dr. Fauci was in the Energy and Commerce Committee testifying in a room that probably had 100 people in it, talking about the urgency of it, but none of us had masks on and the notion of wearing masks was just not in our consciousness. But on the other hand, of people like Fauci and our health commissioner, uh, Dr. Levine, knew that this had to be arrested at the inception or you got behind it and all hell would break loose with respect to the emergence of the infection. So Vermont got a very, very quick start on the social distancing. So we got a quick start. But number two, the reality of how do you deal with a pandemic threat is known. This is not something that hasn't happened before. Challenging as it is to address a pandemic and acknowledge its reality and its power, the steps that the society has to take are very, very clear. 
And number one, uh, it's social distancing. Uh, number two, it's testing. Number three, it's quarantining. And core to all of that is that there's an acknowledgement that the public health and scientific considerations have to rule. And what happened in Vermont, and this is the province of the governor, really, to make the health decisions, is that he totally bought that. So he began making it clear in his uh, three times a week uh, press briefings that we had to be guided by the science and the health recommendations. So that helped us in Vermont. And we got off to, I think, a very good start. Then the second thing I think that's very helpful in Vermont is uh, we're a small rural state where people still know each other and where even though we have significant political disagreements, you've got that lubrication of personal relationships where you see your neighbors at town meeting, you vote on the opposite sides of the school budget, maybe. You have fierce debates and arguments. But on the other hand, that person that just voted the other way than you is coaching your son or your daughter in Little League. Okay, so there's some connections and social trust. And I think that was really essential to what has been a very significant adoption, say, of social distancing, number one, Number two, a mask wearing. And number three, a trust that even if I don't necessarily want to wear a mask, it's important for me to make certain I don't do anything that contributes to the spread of the virus to my neighbors. So I think those, I think that helped us. We had some political leadership on the response, a focus on science and health. And then number two, we had a tradition in Vermont that really is symbolized by town meeting, where there is a higher degree, I think, of social trust then that's necessary, that is really necessary uh, for the civic engagement that's required to do the things that are going to help each one of us uh, keep the spread of this disease down. Thank you. Yeah, Bill McGibbon, Middlebury, the famous environmentalist, wrote a short commentary in The New Yorker last week on the political culture of Vermont, um, which was very powerful and very consistent with what you just said. In terms of the governor jumping ahead and taking the reins of this issue, we've seen similar pattern in Taiwan, similar pattern in New Zealand, places that have been heralded as successes. In those cases, in Taiwan, you had the experience of SARS and MERS to reflect on. So you had an experience of really dangerous outbreaks. In the case of New Zealand, they were watching carefully what was going on in China. And then when they saw what happened in Italy, Spain, Jacinda Alter swung into gear. What do you think motivated? What was what was it that triggered the governor and others of you to say, wait a second, we got to get ahead of this now? Because that does set you aside from, from the response by others. Well, again, I think that there's a lot of political debate in Vermont and we have divided government here. You know, we have all three of the congressional delegation or liberal Democrats, really. Bernie Sanders, very progressive. But Vermont has always elected governors alternating back and forth between Republican and Democrat. And they have tended to be fiscally responsible, including the, the Democrats, but inclusive and always we've had a tradition here of respecting science. So, and, and there's, I think the trust level, which has evaporated in the country and it's reflected in polls about how people don't like yeah. Congress. It's reflected how they don't trust mm -hmm. us or Washington to get things done. There's a high level of trust here 
because everything I think is so low key and, and much more personal than in, in some of the some of the other parts of the country. But I think it clearly was a decision on the part of our political leadership and our healthcare leadership to accept the expert opinions that were being presented about the lethality and the spread uh, of this disease. So if you start with an acknowledgement and acceptance of what the expert opinion is on the the incredibly severe rate of spread and the threat that this poses, then actually the steps that you have to take are clear. There, that's what... It, you know, this is not complicated. If you have a virus that can spread like this, you do have to social distance. You do have to test and you do have to quarantine. So the initial question is, do you believe the science in the public health advice that you're getting? Is it being presented clearly? And we in Vermont started out with a predisposition to accept the science and to listen to the public health expert. The governor accepted that. And by and large, our political and our economic leaders accepted that. Like we had some restaurants. I mean, this is so hard on our restaurants. And by the way, our restaurants in Vermont, are small operations that have been started by these young entrepreneurs who I, I admire enormously because they have a combination of enormous culinary skill. They're all environmentalists and they want to do farm to table. They have an artistic sensibility in their presentation, and they have these organizational skills to make it all happen and to be able to pay their bills and make a living. That is a hard thing to do, and they can't survive in a close down or even reduce. But in Vermont, many of these restaurants closed their doors before the governor did the shutdown order, and that's an indication that whoever our political leader is, is dealing with people in Vermont, even though they have a significant financial peril at doing what the science says has to be done, we're willing to do it without being forced to do it. So that, in my view, speaks a bit to uh, Vermonters and the capacity that a lot of uh, my fellow citizens had to take very seriously the personal responsibility each of us has to do what we can to follow the guidelines. Let's talk a little bit about the other side of that story, which is once you've taken action in leadership and, 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 and introduced temporary lockdown and, 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 and convinced people of the behavioral changes needed and you achieve these gains, how do you preserve them? Because obviously Vermont, like any place, is going to be at risk struggling with the possibility of a resurgent outbreak could be introduced from outside, could come from then. You've got tourists, you've got summer residents coming from all over. You have lots of college students. You have people visiting with the seasonal flow and coming to hike and watch the, see the leaves, ski and the like. Tell us a little bit about how the state has managed the reopening and the outbreaks that it's experienced. It's had a couple of ex outbreaks recently in a few places. Tell us how those have been handled. Well, two things. It's all about the data every day. So we get statistics every day about the testing rate, the positivity rate, about the number of new infections, and about 
uh, how many people are in a hospital and how many have died. So the data is giving you real-time information about, quote, how you're doing. And then the reopening, which the way the governor talks about it is turning it, turning the spigot just a little bit, is monitored and adjusted depending on whether we're continuing to have good numbers. So he took a very cautious incremental approach. That's correct. It was very cautious and incremental, but again, driven by the metrics. Now, and that's continuing because we do have these practical challenges. I mean, it's so tough at this point where kids are going to be going back to school and where some parents are like terrified about, will my child get sick? Teachers obviously have that concern. Some parents are really terrified that if their kid doesn't go back to school, they're going to lose their job. And and then there's a lot of parents that just throw their arms up. So there has to be, I think, in this whole transition process, an enormous amount of humility and respect, not just for, quote, the science in this case about when you go back, but the anxiety that health anxiety and fiscal anxiety, how do I pay my bills, that is still very much with us. And this is where, in addition to careful planning that has to be done, not at the governor level, but at the school board level, we also have to have an economic response where there is some, there's really some financial backstop that acknowledges to citizens and to like those restaurant businesses I was mentioning that, hey, we get it, what you're doing in social distancing and turning the lights off on your economic activity is to comply in effect with what's required for public health. It's not your fault. It's not a failure of your business model. It's not you haven't been working hard. And that's why I think that very much part of getting a good support and sustainable support for individuals and businesses complying with the pace of reopening, the necessity of maintaining vigilance, we've got to maintain the federal role that gets money back to the states, to our businesses, and to our individuals. And it's why these negotiations right now in Washington are so important. But in Vermont, you know, we got about a billion dollars in the CARES package, and there's significant more state aid that would be in the HEROES package. But we want to give flexibility to Montpelier and to the governor to try to design some plans that are tailor-made to help our farmers hang on, to help our restaurants hang on, to help some of our nonprofits hang on. So I do think that in addition to following the science, we've got to acknowledge the reality, the economic pain that is inflicted on people, businesses in the state with significant federal aid. You've been very active. I mean, I know you were involved legislatively in revamping the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, when the terms were adjusted from eight weeks to 24 and the percentage for non-payroll was increased up to 40%. You've been very active trying to support restaurants and attempt to anticipate some of these requirements. The energy efficiency sector, which is an important there also, do you feel like those programs are having significant impact in holding things together? They've been a lifeline, but they work for some and they work re- they've work. they worked really well for some of our small businesses, but they're not enough. I'll tell you, tell you where the PPP program was initially designed in a way that was too restrictive. Those changes that we made really helped 
a lot of our smaller businesses. So that has been really good. But not all businesses are the same. And in fact, I continue to worry about what I would say is this ecosystem of enterprises that are in our each of our communities that depend on each other that I think are going to need focused attention on the reality of their situation. And I'm talking about those businesses where they're really not going to be back to normal until there's a vaccine and people are really mm-hmm. feeling comfortable that it's okay to be like in a restaurant or it's okay to go to one of our local nonprofits that brings in performances and they thrive on selling tickets as well as donations. Or for instance, in Vermont, we have a big uh, event industry for weddings and tents and catering. And those really can't, every time the phone rings for them, now it's a cancellation as opposed to a new booking. And that's an ecosystem that depends on each other, including our small newspapers, You know, if the restaurants aren't opening, there's no advertising for our community newspapers that are really vital to the democratic discussion. So one of the things that has not been addressed by anything that Congress has done yet is how do you help a lot of these enterprises tread water in effect, hang on until the lights go back on? Because when we get to that other side, I want them to come with us. You're living now with this standoff. There's this huge gap between the HEROES Act passed by the House and the HEALS Act passed by Senate Republicans. You've described the, the lapse in the $600 per week support for those on unemployment as catastrophic. And you built your reputation on the basis of a kind of pragmatism and compassion and bipartisanship. How is this standoff going to be resolved, do you feel? I mean, what's, the, what's going to be the central elements of a compromise? Well, you know, the central elements of the compromise are to each of us ask, what do we need to do to help the people we represent in the districts and states we represent get through this? And the the reality is that the answer is the same, whether you're Mitch McConnell or you're Peter Welch, really is. If those folks are unemployed, we can have a discussion about the best way to address it. But they don't have any support right now and they don't have jobs. There's like 30 or 40 million people unemployed and so-called 5 million jobs. So we've always known we have to extend unemployment and usually ratchet down that extension as the employment numbers go up. We all know that all of our states need health care support for treating COVID, for having the testing, the tracing, and the quarantining measures. And here's an area where we all know we have the same, literally the same situation. Revenues in Kentucky are plummeting. Revenues in Vermont are plummeting. And it's all related to COVID effects. And if the federal government doesn't provide significant and flexible aid to the states, the hammer on employment, 10% of the workforce, is brutal. The choice states will have to make about cutting services, and they're all subject to the balanced budget requirements, will be brutal. And what we'll see is enormous property tax increases in the case of Vermont or significant cuts in services on education, on fire and safety. And the long-term effect of this is a prolonged and deeper recession. So the elements of the compromise are really simple. What do what do the people at Mitch McConnell need? What do the people we need 
that we represent need. And they're really identical. It's the healthcare help. It's the aid to small businesses like PPP that was bipartisan. It's aid to the states that was bipartisan in the first bill, but where McConnell is now saying that we should let states go bankrupt. So I think at the end of the day, it's what gives me hope that we will 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 have a compromise. A factor that has made it more difficult is if you remember about six or seven weeks ago, the state numbers across the country were going down on viruses. Right. Right. And and then there was the rush to reopen. And also we saw that it really got politicized about whether you do or don't wear a mask. And it was a fight not on what's the best thing to do given what we know from science. It was the political pressure to reopen prematurely at great economic cost in the long run. So that's the real question for us. But bottom line here, this is a once in a 102 year event. We haven't had this event since 1918. So whatever the ideological predispositions of our our members of Congress, like, Do we increase the deficit? Well, hell yes, we are increasing the deficit. But the alternative to that, and I'm generally a pay-as-you-go person, but the alternative to that is to have a prolonged, deep, and very hard to imagine how we get out of it, depression. So my view here is that it's about having an approach where we say, if we're going to make a mistake, let's do too much too soon. Let's not make the mistake of doing too little, too late. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about vaccines. I mean, they've Moderna and Pfizer have both gone into field trials for their vaccines um, just the last few days, 30,000 each. There's another three American-supported vaccines, and in the coming weeks and months are going to go into field trials. So there'll be five out there at 30,000 each. We'll get some data later in the year and in early into next year. Things are looking promising, but we have to be cautious. We can't overpromise on this. Has anything been done so far in Vermont to lay the groundwork for the introduction of a vaccine? I mean, we know that there's a lot of skepticism and anxiety around vaccines. There's there's been a decline in public in trust with respect to um, vaccines across this country. Um, the polling that's been done is showing. St- startlingly high numbers of people who really are not all that excited about a vaccine. But that's that's going to be the solution, assuming that safe and effective vaccines, it's not going to be just one, it's going to be a variety. But tell me, what's the strategy there in Vermont for getting people's minds around what may come? Well, number one, everyone, everyone is eager to have a vaccine and to have some confidence like polio that you can get this vaccine and it's going to protect you. But number two, there has been a debate about vaccinations in this state, and we went through it. We've had, we have a high compliance rate, like in public schools, it's like 95 or 96% on some of the private schools. It's a little bit lower, but we had a big debate in this state a couple of years ago about whether to extend the exemption for vaccines that we do have if it's based on religious reasons to, quote, philosophical reasons, which essentially may let everybody be their own health expert. And of course, the whole dilemma with vaccines is that if you don't get everybody vaccinated or close to it, then we're not safe. The legislature had that debate. It was a fierce debate because folks who are suspicious of vaccines are very, very determined and fierce about their point of view. 
But our General Assembly did vote to take away the philosophical exemption. So you have... The non-medical exemptions for vaccines for kids. Right. That's right. So uh, so we've been through this debate, and I think it's been resolved, uh, where in Vermont, there's a very large consensus about the importance of vaccines, not just for you, but for others that you get your vaccine and don't become a contributor to the spread. Thank you. You've been very active in defending Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's head of the National Institute of Allergies, Infectious Diseases, and a member of the White House Task Force, COVID-19 Task Force. We had him on recently for a video interview and a podcast. You've gone so far as to introduce legislation to support him. Let's just tell share with share with us, what does he represent in your view? Science in public health and expertise. And the legislation is much more about that than protecting him as an individual. You know, he's a person who actually, you know, he'll be fine no matter what happens. <clears throat> we won't be fine if we don't have Fauci and or a Fauci uh, equivalent. So what we've seen, of course, is that the president uh, is attacking Burks, Dr. Burks. He's attacking Dr. Fauci there uh, on the Internet, which pollutes a lot of the public debate. There has been accusations that Dr. Fauci is the one who created the virus. So it's this wild kind of stuff. But then it gets disseminated to some extent or validated by the president who takes pot shots at him. And the dilemma there is that it undercuts public confidence, that kind of social cohesion that is essential for a society when it's faced with this very, very stressful challenge, as we are. You do need social cohesion, and that means unity. And when you're attacking your most revered and experienced expert, somebody who served Democratic and Republican presidents over decades, then you're undercutting that. So it's about protecting Dr. Fauci, but the real core of this is protecting the principle that science matters, that public health expertise matters, and that because you don't like the advice that you're getting from experts that's based on science is not a valid reason to fire the person because you want somebody who will give you the science that your pollster says you'd prefer. Yes. Well, we've had this drama in the last few days with uh, Dr. Burks coming under attack from both the Speaker Pelosi as well as the president, which is sort of a emblematic of the binds that she finds herself in in this period. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, about CDC because, of course, that's the pr- premier public health institution in our country and in the world, and it's suffered some setbacks. I mean, it had it stumbled over the over the testing early on, but it's also been stigmatized and somewhat somewhat held out. It's lost control of the data from hospitals. They've been diverted to a contractor and onward to HHS. There's a question around what, what's driving that and will it be as transparent and accessible as earlier? What's your view? Is CDC at, at risk? Has it suffered significant damage? Uh, and from where you sit, what's your, what's your sense? Well, I, I really put what's happened to CDC in the context of what has happened to institutions. And in this administration, what's the attitude towards institutions? And the president does not respect institutions. He's made that very clear. Whether you're talking the Federal Reserve or the CDC or even the Republican Party, he relies on his gut. That's his own uh, description of how he makes decisions. 
And what we've seen is a overall deconstruction of our institutions, starting with, say, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, where we've lost hundreds and hundreds of scientists, where there's an attack basically on institutions as not being representative of a populist point of view. And the dilemma here is that you can't have a democracy function without institutions. And it can be everything from the local volunteer fire department to banks to public health agency. And to be sure, there is always a need for reform of institutions. There is always a need for accountability. Like, for instance, the CDC, why did they not get it right on testing? That is a totally fair question. But the answer to that question is not to blow up the CDC. Because in order to protect our environment, we need Environmental Protection Agency, a dedicated, a focused approach to trying to answer environmental challenges. To have public health, we know we need a Center for Disease Control. So... Anytime the question is, how do we make it better? What mistakes did they make? Accountability? Yes. But blowing up the institution is going to be detrimental to the well-being of all of us. But that's a political approach that is very much ascendant in the current administration. You're a member of the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Um, I want to ask you, do you think that this pandemic, what we're experiencing here, the colossal impact it's having on our society and on our economy, the toll it's taking, the insecurity that it's creating. Do you think this is going to change the sense of the place that pandemic threats or pathogenic, new pathogenic threats sit in the pantheon of things that people in the intelligence community worry about? You think this is going to change our, our doctrine and our thinking? Well, you know, frankly, I think it's less an intelligence issue than it is a health issue. And there's a debate among my colleagues on that committee right now. But profoundly, we know that the virus, and it's the coronavirus 19, COVID-19 now, but obviously this could reemerge in some future time of a different virus. And what my lesson on this is that if we're going to be successful, not just in this country, but in the world of trying to arrest this when it emerges, there has to be U.S. leadership. You know, it's the opposite right now. We've got an infection rate, death rate, 10 times what is occurring in Europe. But we know that you need a coordinated and immediate response to the emergence of an identified virus. So it's not as though that can be solved by having good intelligence about when the virus is emerging, when you don't have the political wherewithal to then act on it. And so for, from my perspective... It's a leadership It's issue. a leadership issue. And, and you, you, this virus obviously knows no boundaries. And where, wherever it started... And however it started, once it is started, it has that capacity to race all around the world. And you need some coordination in order to have a collective effort to do what is essential to be done. And that's the testing, the tracing, and the quarantining. Thank you. We close all of these interviews by all these conversations by saying, okay, look, we're, we all know we're in a difficult period. We're in a dangerous period in our history. We're struggling with a runaway pandemic over much of the country and a frightening decline of our economy and social instability tied to so 
racial injustice and the like, and our country's very divided, and we're in a very toxic electoral cycle. So tell us, Peter, where do you find the greatest hope and strength in this period? You're a very optimistic person. Where do you find the hope and strength in this situation? Well, you know, it's the solidarity and the collective mutual support that I see a lot of my neighbors giving to one another. You know, when you talk to some Vermonters, and I'm talking like go back to the restaurant folks and their business is closed and they're trying to figure out how to get back on their feet. We've got a local restaurant down here where somebody made a major contribution. And on Sundays, this uh, restaurateur does $10 package dinners that get out to a lot of our essential workers. And there's a will that people have to say, this is the challenge we face. Here's what we got to do. Let's go. And you don't know what the outcome is going to be, but you know you'd rather try to face it directly. And that's why political leadership really matters, whether it's from our president, our governor, or the head of the restaurant or the head of the business, where there's candor and straight talk with the folks who are working there and shared sacrifice. So I get some significant optimism about uh, the resilience that I'm seeing from many Vermonters who were under enormous anxiety and stress. Will I get the disease? But the real question for most is, will somebody I love get the disease? And then the other question is their financial uh, situation and people are hanging on, but this is, uh, and it's inspiring to me that they are, but it's where the political leadership has to step up, especially nationally, to be candid and engage with people so that there's a sense that we're all pulling in the same direction. And we have a collective responsibility to do what we can to get this virus under control, which is the fastest way to get our economy back to, quote, normal. Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking time today to, to have this conversation. It's, it's, it's very uplifting. It's really rich. I think our listeners will really enjoy on what you've had to say about Vermont's experience. So thank you. Well, I enjoyed it. It's good to see you or talk to you. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye.